So what do you do about the graphsite pain in an ACL rehab situation? Good morning, happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, man, that was a quick weekend. Got a busy week coming up, so let's dig straight into today's Q&A. Today's Q&A is a discussion with Zach, and Zach is currently managing sort of a late stage ACL uh, reconstruction situation. It's a revision, so they took a contralateral patellar tendon graft, and that is actually the site of the, of the current symptoms that they're working to resolve. And so, so this covers a lot of things like uh, the influence of, of the archetype, why there would be um, ongoing load on the knee, and then we talk about strategies to alleviate these symptoms. So it's a really good discussion. Zach is on point. He's a regular on the on the coffee and coaches conference calls. Um, so so I've I've gotten to uh, talk to him on several occasions. Um, but uh, I think you'll find this very very useful. If you would like to participate in a 15 minute consult. Um, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consult in the subject line so I don't delete it, and I would be happy to, to talk with you, um, and you get to get your face up on social media. So there you go. Um, have an outstanding Monday. Have a great week, and I will see you guys tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Clock has started. Go ahead. All right. Um, so I was hoping to do is follow up a little bit on like that ACL graph side pain conversation. Sure. Sure. Um, and I have like a specific patient with some range of motion measurements. If you don't mind, like kind of working through that. Um, Let's do it. Probably Let's asking for more, but um, yep. I guess the first thing I want to clarify really quick, you're talking about how like the pelvic diaphragm is kind of just like pushing down and she's unable to concentrically orient, which is like causing those tissues to behave more stiffly. Um, right. So, so, so if, if there's, if there is a constant downward force, so, so like with the, when we talk about people with, with narrow ISAs and limited breathing excursion, they're going to have an eccentrically oriented anterior pelvic outlet, which pushes pressure down and forward. So it is a perpetual load, which means that the rate of loading is instantaneous. So under those circumstances, the connective tissues will behave in a stiffer manner. That's just the, the normal viscoelastic behaviors. Yes. It's kind of like analogous to when you talk about just like the back squat, how like it seems slower than some movements, but like it's actually just like a series of instantaneous loads. Thousand percent. Right. Thousand. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so can I throw some of her range of motion measurements at you and see? Yeah, let's take, let, just let me hear them. Yeah, so I'm more confident in my upper extremity one, so I'll start with those. Um, I guess shoulder flexion, she had 115 on the left and 130 on the right. What's the affected side of the knee? So she's, she's a revision case, um, tore the right side both times, but they took a contralateral patellar tendon graft for this, for the revision case. Gotcha. So, she's having the knee pain on the left side. Yeah. It's, it's, on, it's on the left side. The right side's fine at this point. Perfect. Got it. Um, so Got 115 it. shoulder flexion on the left, 130 on the right. Okay. Um, her shoulder IR, she's got 70 on the left and 60 on the right. Yep. Um, and then shoulder ER, it looks like she had about, it's pretty symmetrical about 115 on the, on the left and right for both sides. Gotcha. Um, and then at the hip, um, I have hip flexion. Left was a little bit more than right, so about like 100 on the left, and I had 95 on the right. Yep. Um, IR. Already know where she's at, dude. We're good. Up, up there. Okay. So, so here's, what, here's what you're looking at, okay? <clears throat> she's narrow, right? Yep. Okay. 
So, so she is anteriorly oriented. Um, so she's narrow, she's anteriorly oriented <clears throat> and she's getting pushed really, really hard from, from posterior left. Okay. So <clears throat> your, your flexion measures and your ER measures are magnified, right? So your, your, your external rotation on the table um, is, is the dead giveaway because she, she measures in a, a, a magnified manner, right? So we would consider that to be on average 90 degrees. She's 115. Okay. She's laying back on the table, which means you've got a pretty significant amount of anterior orientation that you're dealing with. So let's take the concept that we talked about at the very beginning of the call. And we talk about this, this anterior um, downward force. So, so her internal rotation right now is coming from this anterior orientation of the, of the pelvis and the thorax. So it is, she is way forward. So she's got a lot of load on the anterior knee all the time. Okay. First things first, you're going to have to reduce the anterior orientation. Okay. You're, so, so she's, she's getting pushed from posterior left. She's anteriorly oriented. If you try to bring her back, um, if you try to turn her too soon, it's going to be this blocky kind of a, remember we were talking about trying to move the refrigerator and, and how you would, everything would turn together. Yep. Right. So what we want to restore is this relative motion within the pelvis. So she can, so she can actually create the yielding action posteriorly that she's going to need to take the load off of the, the, the tendon and allow everything to yield. She can't yield right now. Okay. So you got to posteriorly orient the, the, the pelvis first and foremost. Okay. That is step one. You're not going to get the relative, relative movement back on that whatsoever until you do that. Okay. So you got to do that. All right. Then, then she becomes your, your typical kind of left roller kind of a person. You got to get her to, to, to turn. So you've got to create the yielding action. So you're going to have to bring her back to early propulsive strategies. Um, most likely on both sides, but, but, to, to alleviate the load on the knee on the left side, you're going to, have to bring her back um, on that left side for sure. So if you look at, and again, depending on how much, how much range and how far she is into, to her, her recovery and how much knee flexion you can load her in. She's pretty far down. She's like seven months out. Oh, okay, good. Then, you know, uh, so anything that, that we've talked about in the past, in, in regards to, to restoring that yielding action. So even as far as going, so she's going to be somebody that, that looks like the left shifter in a squat, um, <clears throat> you know, where, where they're, they're kind of oriented to the right. And as they sit down, they sit back into the left. So you can use that kind of a thing. Um, all of your left rolling patterns are on the table. Um, she's going to be like, a, a probably going to start her in, in a, um, uh, like a short stagger, kind of a, a chopping action to the left. To, again, we're trying to perpetuate the the left yielding action posteriorly, but but you can unweight her. So so again, she is constantly under load based on her physical structure, and and so the chopping activities reduce body weight. So think about it. It's like, if I'm pulling a weight downward from an overhead pulley, that pulley is pulling me up. She's actually lighter under those circumstances, that's going to be the way that you, you can sort of reduce the load. So we, we get the, the um, um, anterior muscle activity that she's going to need to help maintain pelvic orientation. You get the yielding action on the left posterior side, and then you start to turn her into, into that left side. Gotcha. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing you had talked about, and I guess maybe 
if it still applies, but because you have all the information on the Zoom call, but like starting her in that like lazy bear position and then just like gradually progressing her to upright squatting. Yeah, if she's if she can tolerate the load on, on the anterior knee when she's in the lazy bear, it, I would suggest I would suggest you do you, again think pelvic orientation first and then go there because um, even in in all fours. So people that get anterior knee pain when they're in all fours they get it because they don't have the yielding action available to her. So that's a nice little test for you as well. It's like the minute you put her in, in all fours and you go, how's your knee? And she'll say, oh, it's fine. But, but you got to really clarify with her. It's like, do you feel anything that you don't like in that knee? Because again, she's going to assume that, that it's just normal for her to feel that stuff in, in, in kneeling. Okay. But she shouldn't, she shouldn't, because if the tissues will yield, you don't feel anything. Right. Right. Okay. So that's going to be a nice little test for you. Gotcha. And then are you just using like her extremity range of motion measurements as far as like, as you're progressing activities, just to see like, is she able to maintain like the, like the progress in terms of like actual and like pelvic diaphragm position that you've tried to achieve and just like basically retesting her after you progress something just to make sure she's maintained it. Every time you do an intervention, you got to retest you. Right. That's how you. Know, that's how you know you're doing the right stuff, right? Gotcha. That's, that's that's very good. helpful. Good. And so and now so you remember uh, when we're talking about getting her back to early. So any if you put her in a split stance with like and it's the left knee, right? Left knee. Yeah. Okay. So with left foot forward, anything in a split stance, you want her in a heel elevated position, but you want a platform. You don't, you don't want her, you don't want her in late. You want her in early. So you got to get the whole foot supported on the platform. So where the toes are in line with the foot. So we don't want, we don't want any toe extension under those circumstances. Otherwise you're not, again, you're just not going to get the yielding action. You get ER, but you don't get the yielding action. Everything about this whole situation right now is about teaching that tendon to, to, to yield. Gotcha. Okay. And, and to do that, you got to get the foot, you got to get the pelvis because the knees, the dumb joint, right? And knees knees don't make very good decisions. They're not very bright. They're just going to follow along and they're going to try to, to take over when everybody else can't. And so you got to create that situation where the knee does not have to be the compensation. Gotcha. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So this is one of those situations where people go, Oh, you need quad strengthening and stuff like that. No, no. Yeah. I mean, she, she still tests really weak on like a dynamometer, but it's, it seems. Like, yeah. 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 Get rid of the pain before I can actually know where the quads at. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So, so, and then, then keep in mind that, um, that she's probably trying to use quad as a, as a hip rotator too, when her foot's on the ground. Right. So another, another powerful reason to restore all of that relative motion that you can in, in the pelvis and, the, and in the hip. Okay. Um, because again, it's like, if she's trying to, you know, not turn or she's trying to turn, it's like, wh what do you think she's doing on the, the quad tenant? It's like I said, it is perpetually loaded. You have to take the load away. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and then can we dive a little bit into, I guess, I, I understand kind of like off of like the, just like basic narrow wide archetypes, like which range of motions might be magnified versus um, diminished. Okay. Um, and I feel like you get a little bit lost. Like once you start talking about secondary compensations and then in terms of like, a, like the sacrum and lumbar spine, if like one's rotated like towards or away and then something gets magnified, I just get a little bit lost there. Um, so like some clarification there. Possible. So give me, give me a, give me a, for instance. So, so we can be really specific about this then. Um, 
So I guess like a narrow, um, but like, so narrow, they guess to be biased towards ER, but now they've lost external rotation. Okay. So, so when we think about the sequence of events that occurs based on, so, so this is all based on trying to maintain your center of gravity on two feet, right? So every time that you create an expansion, you're going to move in that direction, which will knock your center of gravity in that direction. So, so narrows after, after the, the, the diaphragmatic compensatory strategy, they fall forward. And so then they have to push back. So they get an anterior compression first in, in the thorax. They'll get it. Like, like if we just talk thorax, it's in the pelvis too. It's just that, you know, it's easier to see in the thorax. Mm -hmm. So they're going to get pushed backwards by this anterior compression. So they go back this way and, and that's why they lose IRs first and they maintain ERs. But if they're falling backwards, what are you going to do? Stop push forward. I, exactly. I got to start pushing forward. And so then I create this posterior compression that, that brings me back forward. And then that's where you start to lose the ERs. So, so the, <clears throat> the easiest strategy is to try to strip these things away from the bottom up, which, which again, it's just reversing gears. Basically. That's why the, you know, when we were talking about your ACL person, um, that's why the quadruped activity is, is, is really good because, um, one, you're going to get that posterior lower expansion that, that, that she needs. And then you're going to go after the pump handle, you know, it's, and it can be one big bang of an, of an exercise under those circumstances. And so again, when you're, when you're talking about, about the superficial strategies that get layered on, that's where you have, that's where you have to go. Right. Um, if we were talking about a wide, we would, we would be talking again, we would be talking a little bit more backwards. We would say, Oh, let's get, let's get the, the DR first and then go after the pump handle because that's the, se that's the sequence in, in which those strategies would be loaded on top of the axial skeleton. Yep, that makes sense. Okay. Getting into like, so off of that, which range of motion measurements would be like magnified or diminished if the lumbar spine is like facing one way versus the other in that scenario? Okay, so, so this is gonna be an, it depends because it depends. Oh. So yeah, it, it always is, right? That when the lumbar spine turns, certain things will get will get magnified. So, so you ever get those people with a hip ER that are like 80, 90 degrees of hip ER? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lumbar spine that's turning towards that hip as you're turning it. When you get a magnification of like a straight leg raise um, or hip flexion, that tends to be somebody that's going to be rolling away from you. Okay. And so you're not actually measuring in that imaginary sagittal plane anymore. You're measuring away from, from that midline, right? So you know, the magnification of the ER on like the right side and the lumbar spine is facing towards that. Side yeah. And so, so here's the, here's, here's the kicker for you there, bud, is that if I get somebody that, that is counter-nutated, they've got the associated lumbar flexion that you would expect to see with counter-nutation, that's a spine that's going to turn all day, every day. And so if I do an, if I do an ER measurement, that sucker rolls towards me. If I take you into hip flexion, it can roll away and it can, and it can magnify it. Right. If I have, if I have somebody that is oriented, um, like, like they're laying on the table, but they're oriented, right. I can get a diminished hip flexion. So it doesn't roll back towards me. Right. It, like it rolls far enough that it doesn't turn, but the right side will be magnified. So again, it's just, it's just a matter of, of, of saying what is possible. Okay. 
and then looking at looking at your measures. And that's that's why that's why the upper extremity, lower extremity comparisons are so important. Yep. Because again, as I'm moving a leg, the leg has a lot of mass, right? That can drive a lot of a lot of movement. Arms tend to not move move the thorax mass nearly as much. And and so so again, it'll it'll help you clue in as to to what you're actually looking at. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. All right, dude. This was Thank good. Thank you so much. You're, you are very welcome. Um, I will see you in the coffee and, and coaches conference call. Yes, definitely. All right, brother. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. So how do you know what to do first? Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Tuesday, busy clinic day today, mentorship calls before then. So lots of things to do. We're going to dive right into today's Q&A. Um, today's Q&A was with Kyle. I had a chance to talk to Kyle over the weekend, and he asked some really, really good questions uh, that, I, that I think are going to be helpful for a lot of people in regards to how do we uh, sequence activities once we've identified what our clients' needs are, what do we prioritize. And then we got into a little bit of uh, programming as to how we execute these things based on key performance indicators. So again, a very, very useful call. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, you can uh, do so by just asking. So you go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Um, put 15-minute consult in the subject line so I don't delete it, and then um, throw me a question um, in the email, and we'll get that arranged at our earliest mutual convenience. Okay, everybody have a, an outstanding Tuesday. Um, we will be back tomorrow with another q and I'll see you. Cool. Okay, Kyle, clock is running. What can I do for you, young man? All right, so my, uh, my question was about um, kind of your process for selecting exercises. Uh-huh. Um, so within your model, you'll look at, um, from my understanding, you'll look at a lot of these different range of motions and um, kind of decipher what movement options these people have available. Right. Um, and then when you're in the process of actually choosing that exercise, you know, if you were to want to increase someone's hip internal rotation, for example, right. okay, I've decided already, I've gone through the process of knowing that this is my move. Now let's pick something that's going to accomplish that task. Right. There are multiple moves that could probably accomplish that task. How are we going about trying to get the best one for this specific individual. So some of the other variables that I've contemplated are infrastructural angle presentation, um, things like training age, and just there are other table tests and how those are going to play into it. But I'm really interested in like all the variables you factor in and kind of deciding like, yes, this was the right choice for this person. Okay. So... So I, I like the way you're thinking about this because you're looking at this person as an individual because everybody presents differently in regards to what their capabilities are. So let me give you a comparison. If I have a 45-year-old accountant that has never played a sport in his life or I'm working with an NBA basketball player, they're not the same. Even if they had the same measures, I would have to approach this differently. Okay. So... Um, but a couple of, of, of principles to keep in mind when you're, when you're trying to make some decisions as to how to approach this, okay? If I have a situation where, <clears throat> excuse me, 
where I've identified the fact that there's an there's an anterior orientation of the pelvis. That's where the pelvis is typically going to go. Um, it would be extremely rare to see somebody in a compensatory strategy that went the other way, right? Just It just doesn't happen because our center of gravity will go forward, okay? So if I have somebody that's dealing with an anterior orientation, that has to be addressed. So your exercise selection has to make sure that that is taken care of. If, if the goal is to restore relative motions, right? So we're talking about movement with between the sacrum and the ilium, not the pelvis moving as an entire unit. Okay. That's typically what the problem is, is that the whole pelvis is, is compressed together and moving as a single unit. Okay. So that's typically going to be step one. When we start to see people that have these superficial strategies that get layered on. So like if I lose ERs and IRs, I know right away, I've got that anterior posterior compression. Okay. That does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So I have to do that. I have to do that first. Then it's just a matter of like, do I have enough space? Do I have enough space to create the, the range of motions that I'm looking for? So if I have lost, if I have lost both ERs and IRs, I need to create that ER space first. Okay. So I have to try to recapture because that represents the space within which I can actually move. Internal rotation is always superimposed on the, the field. I, I call it a field because that's what it is. It's basically a space. The field of external rotation that you move in, okay, internal rotation is superimposed upon that. So it doesn't exist separate from the external rotation. So if I squeeze my external rotations inward, Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's the maximum IR that I can produce. If I expand my ERs, now I have much more room to produce the IR. Okay. This is why we see people that when they are compressed, they start to turn their, their hip sockets and shoulder sockets outward because they're trying to create ER space. Now it's not, it's an orientation. So yes, it's external rotation. It is a representation of external rotation, but they haven't expanded the space. They've just turned towards ER and that allows them to get enough internal rotation down on the ground. So an example of this would be, why do you see powerlifters switch to sumo style power, uh, uh, deadlifts? Because they can turn their hip sockets out and then they can capture more internal rotation. So the guys that, that struggle to even get into position in a, in a traditional deadlift, they don't have enough ER space. So they don't have enough IR to even get into the position of a traditional deadlift. So they start moving their legs outward and now they can find, they can find their, their internal rotation. So, so from a principle standpoint, what we just said is orientation first. ER field second, and then we can superimpose the IR on top of that. Now, having said that, you can increase internal rotation measures without expanding the IR field, but what you did is you distributed it somewhere else. You just made them IR harder in another place. Okay, so you got to be really, really careful with that because that can alleviate pain and things like that, but you didn't improve the situation. You just moved it somewhere else. Okay, okay, now. <clears throat> If I have someone that is highly coordinated, right? Just based on their, their physical history, you have somebody that's like, I, like I'll, I'll have people that come in that <clears throat> they teach group exercise classes. It's like, okay, so I know this person's moved in their lifetime. 
I can use a much more complex activity. I might be able to, to do something on their feet right away. So for instance, if I'm trying to capture left hip internal rotation on an individual and they are a chronic exerciser and they, they've got a sports history, I can give them a right suitcase carry <clears throat> and I can capture that internal rotation because the, the way that the load interacts with the system as they're walking produces a, a stronger uh, middle propulsive action on the opposite side. And that gets me my hip internal rotation. But if I have my 45 year old accountant that's never played a sport in their life and all they do is sit down all day, that's gonna be probably too complex. So what I might have to do there, I might have to go as far as to eliminate gravity, do something with them laying down that allows them to reacquire that left hip internal rotation. So here's how you figure this stuff out. You do something and you see what happens, right? And it sounds, it sounds like a lousy answer, but that's reality because I don't know under many circumstances, I just don't know what someone's capabilities are. So I'm making a judgment call based on my experience. So in most cases, I, like I said, I wouldn't give the suitcase deadlift to the, to the accountant that's never played a sport and doesn't know how to move because again, his system is going to be defensive under those circumstances and he's just gonna, he's gonna try to prevent motion, right? So I gotta put him in a place where I've reduced as many of the forces possible on him to allow him to be successful. So again, I lay him down, I reorient gravity, I take it out of the equation, and then I can teach him some sort of movement vocabulary is what I call it. It's, it's basically, I have to provide him cues so he can start to feel different things that allow him to sense when he is moving because chances are he doesn't have that where my, my athlete or my chronic exerciser that's been exposed to many different things, all I have to do is say, hey, do this. And they immediately know what I mean, right? So, so there's a little bit of experience that plays into this. And there's a little bit of an understanding of what the probabilities are. And that's, that's what experience provides. It, it's, like, it's like, think about it. It's like you've worked with a thousand different people. You get all these different presentations, but then you start to see these, these things show up where, that sort of guide your thought process. Whereas if you only saw 10 people, you wouldn't be able to make those same judgments. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that I mean, all makes a lot of it's, sense. It's a very, it's a very gray answer, but because we're we're dealing with a very gray situation, because we there's so many unknowns. So one of the things that that, that I do um, as I'm talking to my clients is I I just ask them. I say I say, like, what sports did you play in school? Like you know, it sounds like it sounds like conversation to them. Mm -hmm. But literally what I'm doing is I'm trying to figure out what is their, what are their movement capabilities? What have they been exposed to? What do, what will they understand? You know, and then maybe I can speak their language a little bit. So if I had like a, if I had a jujitsu player come in and he, and, and, and he's talking about like, oh, I got this hip thing. And then, so then I can go, it's like, oh, you know, when you do that, that what, you always notice that you kind of hip escape really easily to one side. And then you try to go to the other side and you can't do it. He goes, yeah, it's like, it's like, okay. So that's the, literally what we're talking about. So now I can take his jujitsu and I can make it one of his exercises. And I say, I need you to practice your hip escape to the opposite side. And then that teaches him to create all of these different strategies through the pelvis and through the hip. And so now that helps me select what I want to do for him because it's meaningful to him and it's useful at the same time, but he understands it. 
Okay. So a lot of this is just kind of relating to, to the individual and getting an understanding. Now, having said all that, <laughs> okay, I fail a lot. Okay. Cause I always try, I always try to hit the home run. If I can give somebody one exercise that addresses three different concerns, I will try to do that first. Okay. Again, it takes someone that's more coordinated than somebody that isn't. So, so you know, like I said, again, I, I pick on the 45 year old accountant that's never played a sport because it's kind of easy to do. So under those circumstances, I tend to not give them the most complex of exercises. But if I have an athlete that comes in, it's like, Hey, we're going to go in the gym and we're going to mess around with some, some cable activities. Whereas with the accountant, you know, he's laying on his back or he's laying on his side, or I'm teaching him how to roll, like literally teaching, teaching somebody how to roll, you know, because they, they don't have that capacity based on their physical shape. So, so does that help you at all? Yeah, no, that helps a lot. Um, and like I said, in the email, like, um, I figure there's a degree of, you know, there's always going to be a degree of, um, you know, we're going to try this, we're going to see what happens and we're going to move forward. Um, that actually brings up another question. Sure. If you don't mind. Um, so in one of these um, other talks that you've done that I saw on Instagram, mm -hmm. you were talking to someone who had said, as a, for instance, if I want to increase uh, velocity of this baseball pitcher, then... Uh -huh. I'm going to try to build muscle for them um, just in that situation. And your question then was like, well, how do you know that that intervention is getting that result and there's not something else going on? Um, so kind of like your process on that, because it's like if we take someone through a training session and we get the results we want, but if we did multiple things, it's like, well, how do I know that, you know, um, I'll just give you an example. I worked with a kid who was, um, very narrow ISA, um, all of his inhalation measures, great exhalation measures, non-existent. Right. Um, so we did and also very, very skinny. Yeah. So we did a lot of hypertrophy work, but we also tried to give him those, that dynamic ISA and uh -huh. increase those exhalation based measures. So I'm like, as vertical went up, you know, I'm like this, like he wanted, but I'm like, did he just need some muscle? Or did he meet, need to create those strategies and have access to those strategies in order to get higher? And it's kind of right. like, how do we decipher these things? Okay, so so this is this is this is a great question because it, it just relates to the training process in general and, and how how we actually execute this thing, right? So, um, and in fact, I had this exact same conversation yesterday on on a podcast. Okay, but it's really important that people understand this. We can't predict what's going to happen. Experience provides us, as I said earlier, um, the ability to narrow the probabilities as to what may be um, the, the, the influences and what might be the best interventions. And so, so that's how we initiate. But we have to get to know these people and, and understand their responses to certain aspects of training. And so, so again, it's not like you're going to write a 12-week vertical jump program and expect it to work. I don't know that I've ever written a program that I didn't have to change at some point in time because you're, you're constantly adjusting to the, to the individual. And I always talk, you heard me talk about key performance indicators. So there's certain measures that you know um, based on your experience and based on the interaction with this individual that you know that you have to maintain. So for instance, with a baseball pitcher, they need 
external rotation to demonstrate velocity. There's no question about that. Like if you don't have ERs, you are not going to throw fast. Like you just can't. Mm -hmm. So I want to increase force production on my athletes as much as possible, as long as it doesn't interfere. So let's just say that I'm following this kid and I'm monitoring his external rotations to make sure that they are maintained at all times. Okay. And we put him on the hypertrophy program and he's doing really, really well. Force production goes up. So you said, Hey, vertical jump goes up. So, so obviously we're doing something that is having an impact, right? But he starts to lose external rotation. That's not a good thing. Okay. Maybe up to a point, as long as we're seeing that, the, and again, we have to use the performance and then we use our key performance indicators that support that performance. Okay. And again, we do this over time. It might take you two, three training cycles to figure out which key performance indicator is the most important one. You might not know right away. Like I said, you have to get to know, you have to, you have to have time to get to know these people. And sometimes this is really hard because sometimes we'll get, we'll get people like we'll get our professional athletes in and we'll have maybe six to eight weeks. Like their off seasons are short. Right. Yeah. And so we might only have six to eight, whoops. We might only have six to eight weeks where, where we can, you know, work with these guys. And so that gets really hard. Okay. But it, you know, if you can, if you're working with a kid that's, that's developing, you got more time and you can kind of figure these things out as you go, but that's how you do it. Yeah. Right? You, you got to get to know, you got to get to know how these people respond. You do an intervention, you make small, small changes over time. So like when you're updating a, a training program, each training program should look similar to the previous one with the smallest changes necessary to, to maintain the progress. And that's kind of how you know what the influence is going to be. Like, and again, we would never do this, but let's just say you gave them 10 exercises on the first exercise program. And then the next one comes around and you give them 10 totally different exercises. How are you going to know? Yeah. You're not going to know what was, what was creating the effect. Right. So that's why, that's why we, we, we work in these, these short um, intervals. Okay. So what, so we'll, we'll call them sprints. We'll, we'll do like a two week, uh, a two week sprint where we're trying to raise something. Right. And then we monitor our key performance indicators and then we do our, I, we have some form of embedded test where the be like you mentioned vertical jump. You could do that under certain circumstances. Maybe it's, Maybe it's how he like I like baseball is like huge right now. So, <clears throat> so I got kids that are throwing off the mound for their high school season, right? And so they'll come in. And I'll see them every two weeks, and I'll and I'll just say, you know, how'd you throw? Which means that that you know it's like how'd you throw off the mound? And then, so we'll check their velo, we'll check their their spin, and and all the parameters that we can track for for baseball pitchers, right? So we're constantly monitoring those things, and that's how we kind of plug and chug the activities. Right. And, and we tweak them and then we just get to know the kid over time. So like I got a kid that, that he's going to he's going to pitch for um, Northwestern. Mm. And I've known him for four years. So he walks in and I kind of know what to expect. Yeah. Right. So so he's an easy one to work with. Like, and, and, but again, it took me a long time to 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 try to understand him just like it does with, with any other athlete. But that's how you do it. You do it, you do it based on time, you do it based on your experience. And then you know what? Trial and error is scientific. Mm -hmm. But you make small changes, not huge ones, because when you make these gigantic changes in, in programming, now you you really don't know. You really don't know. And that's your own fault 
that like we have to take responsibility for that. It's like when we make a change like that and we don't understand what the, the, the change in influence is, that's our fault. But that's why this is hard. Yeah. Right? People think this is easy stuff. It's not. It's not. You're dealing with humans, complex humans. Yeah. Was that helpful? Yeah, that was that was super helpful. Okay. Um, and just if you don't mind me clarifying real quick, um, sure. that point about um, like you'll try different things or um, sorry, with the pitcher, like, you know, um, we're moving in the right direction in one indicator, but we're also losing a very important indicator. So yeah. are you constantly weighing that, that option of like, what am I going to get out of this and what could I potentially lose out of this? And kind of like, these are the things I'm going to be constantly pulling from. Always, okay. always. You have to pay attention. You have to pay attention because that's how you're going to learn over time. And that's, again, we're always playing probabilities. We don't know what the answer is going to be. We can figure it out by looking back. In hindsight, we can figure this stuff out. Okay. That's why that's important too, is to always look back and say, what happened? What could I have done better this time? What did we do wrong this time? That's how you start to narrow the probabilities, but it's always going to be like that. It's always going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to not know mm-hmm. as long as you're, as long as you're safe. Okay. Yep. All right, brother. I got to go to another call. So it was All good right. to meet you. And Great. then, uh, Hey man, get on, get on one of the coaches and coffee calls, man. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, you guys are, uh, are, uh, you're two hours ahead of me. So I've hey. been looking at that. I'm like 4am. That's tough. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I understand. Have a great weekend, man. Appreciate it. Let's talk about running really fast. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have Neural Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. It's Wednesday and that means that tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., we have the Coffee and Coaches Conference call as usual. The link to that call will be on my professional Facebook page just prior to the call. So um, I hope you join us. I got some direct messages on a couple of people that are going to be joining us that haven't been on the calls before. Um, so this will be, be fun and exciting. Like I said, great group of people, great questions. I really enjoy these calls. So we're going to keep doing them as long as, as other people enjoy them as well. Time is always short on Wednesday mornings, so we got to dig right into today's Q&A, and this is with Thomas, and Thomas and I got to talk about some fun things about, about running really fast and, and some sprint mechanics and things like that that I don't get to talk about very much as uh, in regard to some of the yielding and overcoming actions that, that are um, present and how they're applied and, and how much ER and IR relationships do we, do we need to be able to demonstrate. Um, and then we took this, that discussion from from the running aspect into um, the training hall a little bit for, for some, some split squat discussion, which was, again, really fun. And so I had a great great time with this call. We went a little bit, little bit long. It was one of those last calls of the day when and I was just kind of digging the conversation. So um, hope you guys enjoy this as well. Um, if you have any questions and you would like to participate in a 15-minute uh, consultation, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and send me your question. And don't forget to put in the subject line, 15-minute consultation, so I don't delete it. And I will see you guys on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. All right, camera is running. Timer is running. What can I do for you, sir? All right, so a few weeks ago, you had talked um, on another video about internal rotation being a performance indicator or performance 
in the IR for performance versus ER for velocity. Yes, sir. Um, my question is, how are they different? And I think the representation I have in my mind is if you think about maximal velocity sprinting, I think of extension, I think of IR, and that's kind of the metric you would use for that. So how does velocity differentiate or how does it compare? Okay. So <clears throat> internal rotation in, in sprinting. So let's talk about top speed because that's where the highest velocity is, right? So, so the ground contact time at the highest possible level of performance is about 0.08 seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's how much time you have to apply force. And so, so a sprinter actually lands on their foot at, or it's actually near, it's right before max propulsion, which is the maximum amount of internal rotation into the ground. So it's not the maximum amount of joint rotation uh, um, that we would typically associate with the internal rotation. It is a downward force. That's why you hear me talk about internal rotation being down. Mm -hmm. okay? So that's why you see every sprinter on the planet with an anteriorly oriented pelvis. That is a performance related adaptation or a gift from the gods, if you will. Okay. That allows them to create this down force because it's the force into the ground that is associated with the, with the, with top speed. So that's where the internal rotation occurs, but because you're on the ground, there's, there's literally the, the most minimal amount of movement available at that point. So if you've ever seen my little, my little diagram of the cones where the cones go from ER to IR, yes. back mm -hmm. to ER. okay. So <clears throat> that, that one point right there in the dead center middle is where that sprinter is gonna be demonstrating the internal rotation. So it is, a, it is the briefest moment in time possible because if I extend that, I take away speed. Okay. Internal rotation stops time, which sounds like this wild and crazy kind of a thought process, but that's the reality. It does, it slows things down because <clears throat> anytime you're producing force, I, that's where I have my ground contact. That's where I am pushing against a baseball. That's where I am lifting a heavy weight. So if we, if we, if we looked at this from like a max effort squat, excuse me, <clears throat> a max effort squat or a max effort bench press, that's intra rotation all the way through that press. Is it fast? Never, right? Yeah. And so, so when we're talking about, about things that are high velocity, I cannot produce velocity with high tension at the same time. I can produce the force that will allow me to demonstrate the velocity, but I have to have expansion to allow the, the velocity to be demonstrated. So, you know, and, and once again, we can talk about sprinting because that, that's what you, that's what you mentioned. So when you see the legs cycling through space, that's not internal rotation. Right. That's external rotation, correct? Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. It is. And, and again, we're talking about, we're, we're not talking about maximums or, or anything like that. It's within a range, obviously. But again, for me to cycle my legs as fast as I do, right? And again, they're flying through the air. There's no ground contact. So what the heck am I pushing against? No, nothing. Nothing, right? So, so again, that's, that's an ER bias that allows me to move quickly. So a baseball pitcher that is throwing a baseball at 95 miles an hour has this one tiny little moment during his, his lead foot ground contact time where he produces the maximum force into the ground. And then everything else is external rotation where he demonstrates the velocity. 
Because again, if I extend the duration at which I am applying force, it's really slow. And again, it's like, all you gotta do is look at the representation of max effort strength training versus something that's really, really high velocity. And now you kind of know why that there's this, this very weak relationship between high speed activities and then high force producing activities, mm -hmm. right? Like making someone gym stronger does not necessarily translate to higher velocity activity. So then if, if it's ER, then is that what you would go after then is ER? If you were like, if you're training with a sprinter, it's like if their ER field is bigger and that moment of ground contact is just that singular IR moment, do you start to go then chase ER? Well, you need to maintain ER within a certain range. So this is, this is you training someone and getting to know them. And you say, I need to have this much of this and this much of this. So, so um, I, I have had the benefit of, of actually doing an assessment on um, uh, a world record holder um, in, 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 in um, the four by four, he was on the four by four team. Mm. And um, if you measure his hip internal rotation, um, based on this discussion, you say, oh, he probably has a lot of internal rotation. He has almost none, mm. okay, at the hip where they get it is, is it's associated with their orientation to create the force into the ground. So, so again, they don't have time to demonstrate a lot of interrotation at the hip. So if they had a lot of interrotation at the hip, they would actually be dampening the force. Cause again, they extended the time that interrotation occurs. So they want very little interrotation at the hip and they use it, they, they orient the, the axial skeleton so it points downward. That's where interrotation occurs. And so again, we're talking about performance here. We're not talking yeah. about we're not talking about health. We're not talking about relative motion. We're talking about high levels of performance. And so again, this is why we have to look at interrotation differently. Everybody wants to look at it as joint excursion. And I'm talking about it. it's a downforce. Mm -hmm. It is force into the ground. It's like, how do I produce that to, to the best of my ability? I orient as much as I can into that position. And then I limit the excursion because again, I want that time frame to be infinitesimally small because the longer I'm on the ground, the slower I am. Mm -hmm. You see it? So, yeah, so is that why you get this incredibly late propulsive foot that's almost as completely fat because that's their IR, is the, the, the hips come forward and then the foot on the IR? Yeah, it's okay. max P, it's max P. So, so where maximum propulsion takes place in the foot is the heel has broken from the ground, but the forefoot is still in its orientation into internal rotation. So there's this massive twist through the foot that creates a rate change in the way that the connective tissues are loaded. So um, when the foot hits the ground in sprinting, um, there has to be a yield, okay? So you run, you run on connective tissues. You don't run on muscles, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that you have to kind of grasp. And that's a toughie for a lot of people because everybody associates the, all this muscle stuff. But the reality is, is like you're bouncing across the ground um, and, and you're using the connective tissues to do so. So I have to land. So, so if you think about walking, walking is really slow compared to top speed sprinting, of course. And so the, the way that the, the, we land on the ground, the foot is ahead of the tibia. So that early propulsive, right? Mm -hmm. So to, to get the connective tissue behaviors that I need for top speed sprinting, I have to land in a similar relationship. So the foot is the slightest bit ahead of the tibia when it strikes the ground. So it's right before max P, mm -hmm. right? So I hit, I hit the ground 
And then that relationship that causes, like if this is the foot hitting the ground and this is the tibia, it goes whoop, like that. Mm -hmm. It's really, really fast, okay? Because the bones store energy like crazy. They're really stiff, but it takes a tremendous amount of force to deform them. But if you deform them, they release a ton of energy, right? And so we're using bone, connective tissue, et cetera, to create to create this strategy. So I land in, in like the, just like right before max P I hit max P and that creates a massive release of energy through the connective tissues. See that. Okay. So okay. Then- and that's, that's internal rotation. It is, it is maximum internal rotation. Again, we have to look at this thing distributed through the entire movement system. We can't just say hip internal rotation. We have to say internal rotation because anterior orientation is internal rotation. Forward head is internal rotation. Thorax tilted forward is internal rotation. You see it? Yes. Yes. I see it. Thank you. Um, so then you're really looking for these types of people who are looking to achieve this high level of speed. Like you want almost no yielding action. Would that be correct? Because that would, that would, you need a ton of yielding. You need a ton of yielding, but, but again, they're going to measure stiffer because they need a higher force to deform that tissue to, to create the energy storage and release. So, so again, I don't want, I don't want the, like the skinniest rubber band that's easy to deform, right? Right. Because that, that's fast, but it's not enough force. I don't want the fattest rubber band to deform because that takes so much force to deform that, that it's like a power lifter trying to sprint. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes. Okay. So, so it, so let's look at the extremes. So the power lifter trying to sprint is too stiff. The, um, the narrow ISA, um, kind of floppy, mm-hmm. the person that gets accused of hypermobile, yeah. right. They can't produce force either. There's this sweet spot somewhere in between those two extremes, extremes where the sprinter lives, where it's very, very high force, just enough yielding action. And so this is, and this is why training becomes difficult. This is why it's hard. It's like, cause I got to find that perfect sweet spot where the force production is exceptionally high. And I get just enough yielding that I can store the maximum amount of energy and release. Right. Thankfully, thankfully people tend to demonstrate this stuff naturally. Like the fastest kid in the class is usually the kid that was gifted with this, with this ability. And then we just have to enhance what he is already good at. Right. It will yes. be rare. It'll be rare to take a high level power lifter and turn them into a high level sprinter. Okay. Although I do know somebody who's doing it. I do too. <laughs> but he had to change. Yeah. He had to change. He had to drop, he had to drop 60 pounds of body mass and he had to literally retrain his entire movement system to be a very good sprinter, but he's doing it. It's really cool to see. I'm fascinated by it. Right. But again, he was already, he's kind of gifted. Like he's just one of those guys that has, a, has a lot of natural gifts too. Mm-hmm. Right. Used to work with him. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Does that help you? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Excellent. Excellent. Um, you got three minutes and 41 seconds. Oof. Um, what do we got? What do we got? Okay. Um, so then talk to me, go back to the kind of the over the coming and the yielding you had talked about. It's about, the rate of loading for the yes. connective tissues. Yes, so as soon as, is if any time you pick up a weight, that's instantaneous load. And you, you were talking to Ryan Patrick regarding the, the back squat versus getting into a cut. And yes. so like, I, I see how that works yes. with the instantaneous loading. So then anytime you do a load, are you creating a overcoming action or yielding action? I'm kind of confused on how okay. that works. 
the confusion lies in the degree. Okay. Okay. So there's a difference between doing a set of like your 12 rep maximum mm -hmm. and your one rep maximum. Okay. So there's seven components of force that influence the way that connective tissues behave. All right. Two of them, one is rate and one is magnitude of load. All right. And so both have an influence. So the bigger the load. So, so again, like think max effort squat, that's a ton of weight. And so the, the way that that load would be distributed would be very, very quickly. So I would need my whole system to be, as they would say, stable to, to be able to manage that load. Right. Mm -hmm. so there would be almost no yielding. So, so you got to think about degrees. Like at one end of the spectrum is maximum yield at one end of the spectrum is maximum stiffness and overcoming. Right. Mm -hmm. So all activities fall somewhere in between the two extremes. So you can think about this interaction, like this overlap and you say, this activity would, would be more of a yielding action. This would be more of an overcoming action. Right. But both are kind of happening at the same gotcha. time okay. at different places. So, um, I think with Orion, did I talk about that? Was that a box jump in the max effort squat? Did I use that example? It was, uh, it wasn't, no, it was the, it was back squat and it was coming into a cut. Okay. Okay. In the cut. So, so at the very last moment of going into a cut, the tissues become stiff, mm -hmm. right? So I have this yield, 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 less yield, more stiff, less yield, more stiff, less yield, more stiff, stiff, and then change direction. You see, you see how they yeah. kind of overlap. Mm -hmm. so it's just like ERs and IRs. When I talk about ERs and IRs, it's like yeah. IR is superposed on top of the ER. Well, guess what? The yielding behaviors and the overcoming behaviors are—they have an interaction as well. So it's never absolutely one. It's never absolutely the other. What we have to understand is that we have these 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 gradiated uh, relationships where it depends because the rate changes as I'm moving, right? Yeah. And so at some point in time the early phase of a movement might be a lot of yielding. So as I go into the cut, there's a lot of yielding at the front end of that, but there's going to be a turnaround point where I have to actually stop time, change direction, right? And then create the release of that energy to come out of the cut. But to do that, I have to stop, which is this incredible amount of stiffness. So now we're back to like max P stuff, mm -hmm. right? There's always a max P in everything. Okay. Even if it's even if it's like a yielding action, because I, if I'm pushing into the ground or I'm pushing against an object, there has to be a point where my my propulsive uh, effort is is maximal. And it's it's a and then I'm not talking about like maximal like ultimate maximal. I'm talking about for that activity. Okay. Like, like max P in walking is not the same as max P in sprinting. Like okay. the force outputs are like ridiculously different. Awesome. Perfect timing. You see what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Hang on. You're my last call this morning. Oh. I'm going to go longer? Yes. Okay. Go. So can, you, can we put this into the context of like, um, like a split squat, for example? So like, obviously, I, I know it depends on how you coach it and whatnot. Let's just say it's a front foot elevated split squat. You're trying to recapture some more eccentric orientation. If I have this right, is this going to be more of a yielding action? Uh, it depends. So, so what is, my, so, so now we got to start talking about, about how we've, we've cued this to, to create that. So, so if I'm trying to create a, so, so let's go pick a foot, right foot, right foot forward, right front foot elevated. And I'm trying to create a yield on the right side. Okay. 
So, so to do that, I have to, I have to acquire a position of early propulsion at the top of the split squat. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've unloaded the front leg. So that gives me an advantage right away to create the yielding action because it's less load, which means the, the, that the rate is probably going to be slower as well. So the magnitude of load is lower. So I'll probably have tissues that are, are able to yield. Okay. So that's okay. a good thing. That's a good thing. Okay. But now I have to create the orientation within the pelvis that allows me to capture the yielding action. And so that requires relative motion between the sacrum and the ilium. So under this circumstance, if I got a right foot forward lead, I'm trying to create a yielding action on that side. I need the position of ER that gives me the yield. So that means I need to turn the sacrum to the right. It's going to face, the sacrum is going to try to face the lead foot under this circumstance. Okay. Because if I can do that, then I know that I have a counter-nutated sacrum on, on the right side. I have an ilium that is ER'd, and that, that sets up my advantage to, to initiate the split squat with, with the early propulsive strategy, which is the yield on that side. Okay? Now, if I want yield at the bottom where I'm going to be biased towards internal rotation... I got to hang on to that orientation because what's going to happen is the sacrum is always going to move towards nutation as I go towards IR. Like it's mm -hmm. inevitable. Mm -hmm. okay? But what you're going to see is I'm going to go from this relative motion at the top of the split squat. As I descend, um, I'm going to go from a counter nutated position to a nutated position and the whole pelvis will turn. So I'm distributing the yield from within the pelvis to the relationship of the pelvis to the femur at the bottom. And then as I come back up, I redistribute it through the pelvis. So I get this cool relative motion at the top. Then the pelvis locks into one position at the bottom. And again, I'm just distributing the, the yielding action throughout the, the system. It's almost like a selective yielding action, right? So at the top, it's with it's within the pelvis relative motion. At the bottom, there's no relative motion, but there's relative motion between the femur and the pelvis as two okay. separate units. You see how, see how yeah. it changes? Okay. Yeah. But this is a big deal because <clears throat> if I don't have that, right? If I don't have that capacity at the bottom, now I have to use a compensatory strategy, which means I'm going to see somebody orient their pelvis, or I'm going to see a wicked side bend, or I'm going to see a lousy into and out of the cut. They're going to have to like stand up to distribute the force, right? Or you'll see somebody that does one of those kind of deals where they go in and out of the cut. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, they, yeah. They look kind of like loosey goosey coming in and out. Yeah. Okay. Does that help you? Does that yeah. help you understand? 100%. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great questions. Great call. I'll make you famous. So, so we'll see you uh, probably next week on the, uh, the Q and A's. Okay. Appreciate it, Bill. Thank right, you. Man. Have a great day. Happy Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. By the way, strong batch today. Very strong. So I'm ready. Awesome. So yesterday I had a client come in to deadlift and there was one situation that was that you could see more than another, which was a thoracic and cervical extension as he was trying to deadlift. So I've been following the guide of you know, not table testing everybody if it's unnecessary, just kind of seeing things happen and then go to the table and let's see. So then I put him on the table and I checked his ER and his dorsal rostral expansion and it wasn't 
there. So I gave him exercises for expansion of his upper back. It fixed, it helped some things in that moment. I told him we need to go through this over and over again. But then his his lower back, um, there was more curvature in his lower back. So then retesting and then I, no iron in the legs. So I didn't know which one to like put more emphasis on, but I told him this is one thing, this is another thing. Is that does that kind of about come up? Like you fix one thing, another one comes up, and then you have to go fix that one too. So, so typically everything's going to happen kind of at the same time. So, so you had you had two scenarios that demonstrated a lack of external rotation. So you had a dorsal rostral compression <laughs> feels external rotation, and then you had a demonstration in the lower back that was a substitution for a lack of external rotation. So, so they were yeah. similar in that respect, right? So, so he's kind of telling you that he has this narrowed window of, of extra rotation available to him to acquire the positions that you asked him to, to acquire, okay? So, right. so under those circumstances, if the goal is to improve the, the movement capabilities, your, your intention should be driven towards that external rotation first because he's lost both. If he doesn't, have, if like if you measure him directly and he doesn't have internal rotation, and he's showing you two substitutions for a lack of external rotation, then then you probably need to go there if you're trying to improve his movement capabilities. Deadlifting is not about good movement, though. Understand that, right? It's high force production, yeah. right? It's squeezing, it's compressive, it's you know, like you're starting from a position uh, um, where you're trying to squeeze the bejesus out of everything because you're literally pulling weight off the floor with, and, and again, you talk about, have a great day. We talk about muscular effort versus um, using connective tissues that the deadlift relies less on connective tissue behavior than anything else does as far as the, like the big three lifts, because there's no, there's no um, yielding action prior to other than acquiring the position. So, like I said, I would think that, that you're going to want to go ER emphasis first because you need to make space for him to IR. Got it. Does that makes sense. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it, you know, he looked like a, like an iPhone cable at first. And then after helping him out a little bit, it was, <laughs> you know, the iPhone cable. hang on, hang on. Let me write that one down. <laughs> so, an iPhone cable. Know, at, least, at least it was not that bad after getting some, some of that, Upper dorsal expansion. Understood. So, Understood. so the, again, so you're going to have to make a decision as to how much movement that you want to add to this. Because, like, what's the goal? Is is this guy like a like a competitive guy, or is he just like a no recreational? Okay, then then you want to take care. Then you want to make sure that you maintain some measure of that relative movement. Then, so yeah, right. after yours. I've been looking through um, the work, the stuff about like the the right anterior, right posterior, left anterior, left posterior, pelvic floor through gait. And I just don't, uh, what I'm just not quite understanding. So if I've taken a, a right step and I'm at right max propulsion, why would the right posterior pelvic floor be eccentric and yielding? Would it, to my mind, it should be overcoming. At what, at what point are we forward. talking here? We're talking about middle propulsion, right? Uh, uh, might've been just what I, uh, my, uh, I have it down, like just in my notes is max. So is that just incorrect where at max propulsion, it isn't yielding on the posterior, it is overcoming. 
Okay, yeah, so, so are you moving forward? Yes. Is one side moving forward faster than the other? Yes, the okay. if I'm so on I right to, max, the left side is. So I have to create a delay to, mm -hmm. get, to allow the other side to keep moving forward. Okay. So, that makes so sense. one side will be yielding, one side will be overcoming. Okay, sure. Otherwise, so otherwise, otherwise, there would be no differential between the two sides, and both sides would either have to move together or not move. So then, how do I get from the eccentric yield um, to a concentric yield by late propulsion? Because I mean, the pelvic floor still has to shorten to do that. So, no, it doesn't. <sighs> Where's, where's the yielding and overcoming come from? Um, I, in my mind, I've always just considered yielding to be like relaxing and lengthening and then overcoming to be, okay. It's the connective tissue behavior. It's not muscles. The muscle orientation, right, okay. the muscle orientation doesn't have to change. I have storage and I have release of energy. So a yielding action is a storage of energy. The overcoming is, is the position of release based on the rate at which a tissue is loaded. Okay. Mm, okay. Yeah. That, that makes a whole lot more sense now. Thanks. Yeah. So, so this, but this is huge. This is a huge because, and we talk about this a lot because, because it is kind of confusing because people associate yielding with eccentric orientation and they're not the same thing. Eccentric orientation is, is the, the, uh, the moment in time at, where the, the muscle is represented at a length, right? Yeah. Okay. Yielding action is the, the, um, the behavior of the connective tissues. So if I have an elastic um, tissue, right? It has to be able to lengthen and then release the energy and compress. So the yielding action creates delays. It slows things down, but it also is a, is a position where I'm storing energy in the tissues for a release of, those, of that energy. Right. So just, just to check my understanding in this scenario, the, the soft tissue, we're talking about like um, endoperi and epimyzeum and then like tightening and stuff like that. Is that what we're actually talking about? Say that about? again. You have such a great accent. Would you say that again? <laughs> uh, epi, endo, and perimyzeum. And yeah, then like that's what we're talking about here. Um, if, you want, if you want to just narrow it down to that selection, I'd be cool with that. Um, but don't forget about all the other stuff that, that is considered connective tissue because it all behaves the same way. So, for example, it's not just going, walking forward isn't the only way to walk, right? Correct? I mean, it is the only way to walk. I mean, you can walk backwards too, right? No, you can't. Yes, you can, right? Yes, you can. No, you can. No? It's impossible. Um, Hang like on. I'll do it backwards. Okay. No, no. You can't go backwards. You cannot go backwards. Okay, I'm not saying your feet is turned you want me to backwards. Do you Go ahead. Okay. There is no backwards. Okay. How many sensory organs do you have that face backwards? None. Okay. Which way do your feet point? Forward. Okay. If you were supposed to go backwards, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be smart to have like maybe an eye back here on the back of your head, like your backup camera in your car? 
Wouldn't it be okay. wouldn't it be reasonable that my feet should turn all the way around and face the other way so I can go in that direction? You follow it me? Would so be. Far? I'm yeah. not done with my story. I'm not done with my okay. story. Follow okay. me so far. Okay. Okay. Follow. Stand up and be our representation, please. Gotcha. He did this to me a few months ago, Jordan. So <laughs> I, I, I feel your pain. Okay. So here's what I want you to do in the slowest possible manner. Okay. I want you to take a step back with your left foot. Okay. Freeze like frame. matrix. Okay. Freeze frame. Okay. What did you just do? I made my right side super heavy. Okay. Did you mm -hmm. go backwards or did you go forwards? I feel like it's a rhetorical question. Um, no, it's not. Uh, it's a very simple answer. <laughs> I went. I, I went backwards. I I, I moved with freeze no. frame. No. Oh, I see what you mean. I went. I moved forward to go back. If that makes sense. You hang on. Here's what you did. Okay. You moved. You moved faster forward on the right and you slowed down on the left oh i see what you mean okay i move faster no forward on the right and slow down on the left one of the most painful things i've ever seen my dog got trapped between my nightstand and the wall and they, they moved he in, in slow motion first. he went in head first okay mm -hmm. and it was it was it was i i wish i would have put it on video so everybody could see this it took him forever to figure out how to, how to get himself out of that because he doesn't know how to go backwards either. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. Same thing with the cats. They don't, they look stupid moving backwards. The mechanics that you use to move in that direction are forward mechanics. Okay, I see what you mean. You're exaggerating, you're exaggerating the advancement of one side and the delay on the other. I see what you mean. So, and even if I was like moving backwards, like with speed, I would have to lean forward, press into the ground to actually go back. I see what yeah, you mean. So, okay. So, so Jordan, here's what I want you to do, boss. Get mm -hmm. the wall behind you. Yeah. Okay. Get about six inches from the wall. Just stand in front of the wall. Okay. Just in front of it. No, 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 no. Don't face it. Turn your back. To okay. The there we go. So I'm putting the wall there so you don't fall backwards and, and get a concussion, <laughs> right? Take a legitimate step backwards. So mm -hmm. lean back, lean mm -hmm. back and okay. take a step backwards. There we no, go. That was forward. So, so try it again. Wait, lean back. You have to lean backwards. backwards. Yeah, if you can walk backwards, go ahead, do it. Okay, lean back and take it. You better be slamming into the wall if you're gonna go backwards. Yeah, you, it's like you're falling. I'm falling. You are falling. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's why you can't walk backwards. I see what you mean. Okay, all right. Hmm. Yeah. But. Sorry, you're not gonna convince me otherwise. Can you move in that direction? Absolutely. Is it backwards? Yeah. No. I see what you mean. So your, your, your feet and everything, just the reason being everything is facing forward, you're always going to be biased towards going forward. So no matter what you do, going side or back, you're facing forward all the time. Universal principle. 
Mm-hmm. Can't go backwards in time. If you're a thrower, you may want to pay attention. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. What a great week. Looking forward to a great weekend. Got combatives training this weekend, so that's kind of exciting for me. Second round, so we're looking forward to that. Um, I recently was on the QB Docs podcast with uh, Drew and Dusty Keel. So outstanding quarterbacks in their own right. They do some great work uh, with throwers and quarterbacks. And so we talked about about my model and, and how that's influenced what they're doing. So they're starting to apply this stuff um, rather successfully as well. And so we covered some foundational stuff in regards to archetypes, but then we kind of deviated off into rotation and some connective tissue behaviors. And I think we did an hour. Um, so this is just highlights from that hour. So so make sure you go to the QB Docs podcast if you want to listen to the whole thing. And then um, Drew and I stayed on and we talked for like another hour and 20 minutes. So we had a blast. And so I'll probably throw some highlights up maybe even next week from some of this stuff because we covered some some really interesting concepts. So I hope you enjoy this. Um, If you have questions or you would like to participate in a 15-minute free consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Drop me a question, put the 15-minute consult in the subject line so I don't delete you, and uh, we'll take care of that at our earliest mutual convenience. So everybody have a great weekend, and I will see you guys next week. Hey guys, welcome back to the QB Docs podcast. Uh, Doc Dusty is here with me. This is Doc Drew. But Bill, we'd love to pick your brain here on your model. We'll start with your model here first. And we've been diving into this thing the last few months. And there is, there's a wide ISA and a narrow ISA and some you know, things that happen off of the, either you being a wide or narrow. But I think one thing that we're really getting caught up on is how compressed is compressed, right? Like from a continuum of compression, because we see compression at different areas of the body. And based on what ISA you are, you're going to present a little bit differently. You know, what does that continuum look like? What are some of your key performance indicators that are telling you how compressed someone actually is? Well, let's, let's distinguish between the two extremes first. So when we move through space, there's only two ways to do it. And this is, this is based on a universal principle, right? So we are part of the universe. We have to behave as such. So, so it only makes sense. So there's only two ways to move and that's through um, expansion and compression. So it doesn't matter where you look in the universe, everybody does the same thing, right? Um, if you're a worm, you expand and you compress. If you're a dog, you expand and you compress. If you're a human, you expand and compress. So, so we change shape. That's how we move. So people look at levers and pulleys and things like that. And that's okay for dead guys, but dead guys don't move. And, and so we move and therefore this is how we do it. And so what I was looking for was a way to distinguish how someone does this and what you look at if you go deep and i'm talking like a hundred years back uh, and you start to look at some of these representations of how things were done 
Um, they did a little bit of this, but they didn't distinguish between all of the characteristics. And so you have a physical structure. I have a physical structure. If we had a seven foot tall person, they would have a different structure. And so everybody has to behave based on that. And so what you'll find is, is that some people are better at squeezing themselves to hold positions against gravity. And some people are better at expanding themselves against gravity. And so what I, what I did is I took the two extremes as a representation. And so we have people that are good squeezers and then they have to create a compensatory strategy to, to breathe against that squeeze. So a squeeze is an exhale and then you have to find a way to inhale. And so that would be representative of the wide infrasternal individual because what the reason that the infrasternal angle stays wide is because they have to compensate to breathe against a body that's a better squeezer. And then you have the other extreme, which is the narrow ISA, which is somebody that is better at expanding, but they have to figure out a way to exhale. And so, so they have to figure out a way to squeeze. And so that's why the ISA representation gives me sort of like a, a foundational representation of what their, what their bias is. It's not that they can't breathe in and out, it's just that they would be biased towards one strategy or the other. So when you're distinguishing between how compressed someone is, you think about the, the strategies that you would have to use over time. So the greater degree of compression of the human body would require more muscle mass to create the squeeze. That would imply we're going to recruit more of the superficial musculature to provide that, that element of compression. Therefore, the superficial muscles are the ones that move your extremities. So if I'm using them, as, as a component of a compensatory breathing strategy or a strategy that helps me maintain my position in space, the harder I squeeze, the more extremity motion you're going to lose. And you will lose it in a very distinct way based on how hard you have to squeeze. So the more you squeeze, the more motion you're gonna lose. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, the, the next thing for me is, okay, with us working with quarterbacks specifically yep. and quarterbacks, just like baseball pitchers, just like golfers have, they need the ability to rotate. So as, as I'm, if I'm a field athlete, like a football player, I need to be big, fast and strong. Yep. But then I also have to be a quarterback where I have to rotate to cut the throw. Right. Yep. So how do I become big, fast and strong without interfering with by losing rotation how do i how do i do both of those things is it possible and if so i'd love to hear your your take on that well so 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 to turn we need expansion in some way shape or form so expansion would be represented by by our measures of, of external rotation so first and foremost it's like number one can you turn so the thing that we find out through development so you guys probably played peewee football and all that kind of stuff. And as you were growing up, you kind of figured out, it's like, oh, look at my last name. I'm designed to be a quarterback, right? So structurally, you guys are quarterbacks. Whether you like it or not, we're gonna, you were born to be quarterbacks. And, and, so, and so is everybody else that becomes a great quarterback. So they all have a design structurally that contributes to that level of performance. So structurally, you're going to have a way that, that you're going to turn. So, so from a it's very rare that, that somebody that becomes a, a throwing athlete or a rotational athlete does not demonstrate some capacity early in their development, right? It's like, you know, somebody doesn't walk, walk into a, a, 
a college training room and suddenly become a quarterback. They've had some measure of, of success. So when you're training this individual, yes, you want, I want maximum force production out of all of my athletes based on what the demands are of their sport. I want it to be maximal. However, there are other elements in regards to the performance that are necessary. So if, if I am a quarterback, I have to be able to turn to a, to a certain degree. So what we do is we have key performance indicators that we have to follow. External rotation is one of them as a representation of creating the spaces that we use to access motion. And so what you might do in the training process is you monitor those, those measures as you're applying the training methods that increase force production. And this is how it works. It, this is not predictable at all. Mm -hmm. and, and so we, we actually have to go through the process, but that's, that's what training is. You go through a process, you measure things on a regular basis to make sure that yes, my force production is going up as expected, but I'm not giving up those things that I also need to perform. And so if, and I'm gonna just throw out an example. For sure. So let's just say that you're a quarterback and you walk into the training room on day one and your bench press, your barbell bench press is 225 and then you train it up to 325, but you gave up 30 degrees of shoulder rotation in the process to get it, right? Because that requires, to, to increase force production like that, requires your ability to, to compress more, to squeeze more. So the superficial musculature, you gain hypertrophy, you gain force production, and that is a squeeze and a squeeze is what's gonna steal the turns. And so if I steal that much turn and then I take that away from someone, I might compromise their ability to perform. Now, up to a certain point where it does not interfere and I do increase force production, now I have somebody that maybe I put another 15 yards on their, on their, their top end throw or I add five miles per hour to their, to their baseball pitch, right? Up to that point but going farther, now it becomes interference because I took something away that is essential for that performance. But the only way that you're ever going to determine that is to train somebody. Mm -hmm. And that makes you're people right. uncomfortable because people wanna know what the answers are before you do something. And the reality is we're living, in, we're living in a complex situation here and I have to apply things carefully. I do experiments all the time and I have to find out what those results are. And then I determine what that process should be in hindsight. So I have to look back and I say, this was a good thing. This was not a good thing. So the good stuff that I do, I keep doing. The, the stuff that becomes interference, we eliminate. And that's typically what we end up with. When we take on an athlete at, at IFAST, they go through that process because we have to learn who they are. It's not, like you, it's not like people can walk in and they say, here's the 12-week right-handed pitcher program. Wow, okay. I think that's a great point too right because i think that's across the board too bill right where yeah. so many coaches at all levels just think that it's a, a cookie cutter hey let me give you my program right. but right. like we're talking you know you versus drew versus me we all move different right and we need different things for our for, our, for the goals we set for ourselves and at the end right. of the day become a better pitcher or a better quarterback i think that's bill yeah. i think that's a big problem i'm that's the biggest problem that we see right now in the field and the culture of football is that you go into a high school weight room as, an, as a freshman in high school, right? And it's bench, squat, clean, and some deadlift. sort of hinge, yeah. whether it's an RDL or deadlift, whatever it may be. Yeah. But 
when it comes to the development of the athlete at that, at that point, it's probably great. But if you're a quarterback, maybe, maybe, maybe not, you know, based off of where you're at and and your body type. Right. 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 So, and and that does matter. So, so for instance, if when, when, and this is a really, really simple representation, when you have somebody that, that presents as, as structurally a, a narrow infrasternal angle individual, so they, they turn on a steeper helical axis, which means that they are a lousy deadlifter. Mm-hmm. Okay? They're not designed for it. But yet, if the programming says today's, today's your, your RDL day, they still have to do it. And again, that's one of those mistakes. And, and again, maybe for a while it's okay. Maybe it's beneficial for a while, but, but that's why we have to monitor this. But, but you can't just throw a, a generalized program. And, I, and I, I think team training is one of the hardest things in, yeah. in the entire strength and conditioning field because of that. It's like you've got one coach and, and maybe a couple of assistants or maybe an intern, and then you've got 120 players. What are you going to sure. do with that? That's, you know, that's, that's hard. It is, it, it's like, how are you going to individualize that? And there's ways to make it better. But it's still extreme. I think they, I really do. I, I, I live in a world where I've constructed the ideal situation where I get to work with one person at a time. And I get to know that person. And I, and I did that for a reason. It's because I don't want that job because it's too hard to do. And then, you know, if something goes wrong. Who's, who's going to get the blame? Right. And even though it might not be their fault, but I would also say that we have to be responsible and say, okay, you know, the programming is generalized and we have to accept that fact. And so there's going to be some good things and then there's going to be some bad things associated with it. Can you talk about how training, if somebody is a wide and they're Mm -hmm. a lousy squatter and they continue to do these extension based exercises, how they're going to kind of have these layers of compression over time and what that's going to do to the body. Absolutely. So, so if you're already good at something and I, and I continue to reinforce that, right? So again, as force production goes up, so if you're a really, really good deadlifter and I continue to push the numbers up because somebody said, you got to get stronger, you got to get stronger, which is a useless term in regards to performance because you can't measure strength during performance. You measure it in the weight room. It's a comparator in the weight room. It is not a measure of performance at all on any level, because it, it's meaningless. It's a meaningless term. Um, but if I'm already good at that, and then I add to it, maybe I get an, a, a bump up in performance. But again, it's the, same, it's the same concept that we were just talking about a minute ago. It's like, at some point in time, to get better at something, I have to give up something else. And the way that that happens is we start to recruit more and more muscle because I have to squeeze tighter and tighter and tighter. And so again, the superficial musculature is, is the source of this. And this is where, this is where the, the, the ranges of motion get stolen. But with a wide infrasternal angle, because of the initial compensatory strategy to breathe in, there is, a, there is a relative segmentation of how these strategies get layered on because um, an element of, of what I am trying to control is my center of gravity in space while I try to stay alive and, and, and breathe, right? which sounds really dramatic because it, it is. It's like you're literally going to, to end up sacrificing the ease at which you breathe 
in return for performance. But these these strategies will will layer on. And so so one of the first places that you're going to notice it on on a wide infrastructural angle is you're going to see the the dorsal rostral, which is which just means upper back, right? It actually comes from quadrupedal research. So I carried that over from that. But you're going to see this this upper back compressive strategy, and what that does is it is it actually steals shoulder external rotation. Um, it will create an orientation of external rotation, but, but it doesn't allow the relative motions that are required for something that would be complex like a throw. So, so a throw requires a very complex relationship of, of an expansion in a compressive strategy, but most of the throw is because of the velocity that, that is required in a throw is mostly the external rotation because that's where velocity is demonstrated, right? And so one of the things I don't want to do, especially if you're a quarterback, that's a wide ISA is again, I want to raise the force production capabilities, but I don't want to extend the duration that is required for you to demonstrate those force production capabilities because the longer that force production takes place, the slower you throw. For sure. Does it, in the gym, you're stronger, but the velocity that you can produce, because you're, you're basically creating an interference. If, if velocity is demonstrated in external rotation and I extend the duration of internal rotation, I steal the duration of the external rotation. And again, there goes velocity. So you're telling me that uh, heavy sets of three in the, an RDL or a deadlift aren't going to do any good for a quarterback? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that, that it may be beneficial for a while, but at some point in time, it may become interference. Sure. This is, and again, this becomes the monitoring process. This is how you train people, right? You don't write a 12-week program and say, you're going to be, you know, it's like, it's back in the olden days before you guys were born. It's like, you know, 1985 Flex Magazine, you, you buy a 12-week program that promises the 300-pound bench press. It's like, they can't <laughs> <laughs> they don't even know, you know, and, and it's like they sell a thousand of them and then like 18 guys do bench press 300 pounds and those are the ones that get their picture in the magazine. So yeah. from an intervention standpoint, you know, you would want to put somebody who is, has that concentric bias in those stiffer tissues, you would want Way to back put to early. More early or late, right? Or Way back or to, late. no, 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 never late because- never late. Late, latest stiff connective tissues. I want to move them towards early. And so this is why you see us. Okay, now we got to be really specific here because it isn't just heels elevated. It is the foot on an on a ramp. I need the toes in line with the foot. If if the if the metatarsal heads are on the ground and my heel is elevated, that is a late propulsive representation. Okay which means I have immediately stiffened the connective tissues and created interference. That's why the ramps become so important. If I have somebody that's biased towards a late propulsive strategy, so this is somebody that it's, that's they're late in that step of the gait cycle, they wanna lift their heel off the ground and they wanna get on the balls of their feet, their low back, they're, they're gonna have compression on the, on the posterior rib cage that looks like they're always getting shoved forward. They're at the Grand Canyon, they're sort of at the edge of the Grand Canyon, they're always looking over the edge, okay? Those people, the easiest way to address the, the connective tissue properties is to move them all the way back to this early representation where the entire foot is on a ramp. You immediately give them the capacity to store energy in the connective tissues under those circumstances. Those that can produce high levels of force 
and maintain their ability to utilize connective tissue behavior, the storage and the release of energy. Those are the guys that are the, that are the best performers in the world. This is why the best jumpers in the world don't have 600 pounds.